0: If you do your job well, you get to have the hint of the magic left with you. And I analogize that to the cake is yours, but I get to lick the bowl. And how magnificent is that? And the more you do it, the more you do impact people around you. But selfishly, do it for you first. It's sort of like put on your own oxygen mask before you put it on you know, your neighbors. And then what will happen at work for people that are listening, since this is more of a work podcast, people aren't going to say, my, 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 how skillful you are. Or you're using holding the calm techniques correctly. No, they're just going to say, she just gets stuff done. He just has a way with people. He's just easy to deal with. She's a good leader. That's what people will say.
1: Welcome to this episode of Conversations Powered by Quantibos. I'm Brian Gorman, a Quantibos coach and the host for Conversations. My guest today is Hesha Abrams. Hesha is the author of Holding the Calm, The Secret to Resolving Conflict and Diffusing Tension. Welcome, Hesha. My pleasure. As soon as I read Holding the Calm, I knew that we needed to talk. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. Because the world of business is anything but calm these days.
0: Yeah. You know, it's so funny. The hardest thing I had when the cover designer for the book kept wanting to do all this Zen junk. I kept saying, no, 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 no. This is about a tempest in a teapot. This is about intensity and difficulty and conflict and challenge. You know, everyone, we look at conflict like a root canal. No one wants it. How do you handle it? How do you deal with it? And it's not kumbaya. I'm not, oh, win-win problem solving. Let's all talk with each other nicely. Okay, that works, what, 3% of the time? (laughs) Let's talk about the other 97% of the time when you can't stand the other person or they're evil or they're trying to hurt you or they're just too stupid to understand or they're rude or they're arrogant or they're impatient or fill in the blank.
1: Or one of the things that I very often encounter, the politics say they have to win, which means in their minds, you have to lose.
0: Indeed, and it's such a simpleton way of thinking, and yet it seems to be part of the human condition. And so figuring out how I can win by making you win, there's a whole story I have in the book called giving people a wowed, a way out with dignity. And I give a bunch of stories and anecdotes and, you know, ways that you can do that. It's all just packaging. I mean, that's everything in our world, particularly now, is packaging. And if you don't know how to package something, your effectiveness is just dramatically reduced. That's just the the reality of the game.
1: Before we started to record, you made an observation about me as compared to yourself. And you talked about who you wrote the book for and why? Would you care to share that with our audience?
0: Sure. So even in the first five minutes, you know, you're a calmer, more water personality, and I'm a more fiery personality. So the whole concept of holding the calm, I came up with for myself, how do I hold the calm when I'm dealing with difficult situations? And what I have found through teaching thousands and thousands of people, and I've given literally 10,000 speeches in my life, the sort of Malcolm Gladwell blink thing is what I've done. And that so much of it is, you know, conflict is like a root canal. Nobody wants it, it's awful. But what do we do? How do we avoid it? And knowing how to do it from your vantage point, you're a fire, okay, this is what you do. You're a more water, more gentle person. How do you step into it and diffuse it so you don't just have to run away and get taken advantage of and then stew Afterwards, first of all, it'll give you a heart attack. It'll kill you. And it's not effective. And so, one of the things I did is the title is longer than I would have liked, but I did it for a reason Holding the Calm, the Secret to Resolving Conflict, and Diffusing Tension. And the reason for that is that 100% of conflict, 100% starts with tension. And tension can be angry, it could also be. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Mm Mm-hmm. That's also tension, the silent treatment. That's even worse. So I use the analogy of spaghetti sauce. We've all dripped it on the counter. You wipe it up with a sponge. It's no big deal. You wait the next night, you're scraping it off with a spatula. You wait a couple of months, and it's old and moldy and nasty. That, my friends, is conflict. And we all know it. So why don't we wipe it up when it's wet? Because we're afraid. We don't know how. The consequences could be bad. Maybe we'll make it worse. And all it does is mean the spaghetti sauce doesn't get wiped up. So I really should have called the book How to Wipe Up the Spaghetti Sauce When It's Wet, but people wouldn't have understood it at that point.
1: (laughs) I, I like that analogy. It really makes a lot of sense. There are a couple of areas I want to probe around this because there is such a thing as healthy conflict. Indeed. And being the water person I discovered I am just now, healthy conflict can still involve tension. Mm -hmm. But as a leader, I may actually have a role in fostering that and managing that and not just working hard to resolve it, if you will.
0: That's beautifully said. What you just did was almost advanced leadership. You know, rather than dealing with what's in front of you, you help people solve it through. It's the whole basis of the Socratic method. You can ask me a question. A kid can ask me a question. I can just give you the answer. Okay. Or I can help you figure out the answer for yourself, not belongs to you. It's that whole give a man a fish or teach him how to fish thing. And that's what happens with healthy conflict and fighting fair and how does it devolve so quickly? And I would ask our listeners to think about any conflict they've had. I don't care if it's with a neighbor, a kid, a spouse, work, a political conversation, think about anything. It often starts out nice. I say something, you say something, I listen to you, maybe you listen to me. How many times does that tennis ball go back and forth over the net? If you're really skilled, maybe three or four times, If you're not skilled, barely once. But if there isn't a way to see a path toward resolution, it always devolves. And it may devolve into just, let's agree to disagree, or I can't talk with you about this, let's stop the conversation, which is not really a resolution. And so the techniques I have in holding the calm are so easy. I mean, I do this for a living. I'm a high-end mediator, and I've been mediating for 35 years. And now I only do big, complex, huge business, intellectual property, securities fraud, those kind of huge cases. And I'll walk in and somebody will say, I want $100 million. And a defendant, like one of the Fortune 100 big guys, you know, the the Apple, the Amazon, the Google, the IBM, the NVIDIA, I mean, Verizon, these are all the clients I work for. They'll say, here's 10,000, go away how do I settle that? It's not with superior intellect or reasoning or persuasive skills. It's understanding the dynamics of what people need and how to try to bridge that. And one of the things I talk about in the book is I like to create small, winnable victories. What we tend to do is big issues, gun control, immigration, abortion, school prayer, ah big stuff you can't get big stuff done because it becomes identity politics and people then wed themselves to their position. You will never give them data, facts, or logic their way out of that. Never. Not in a million years does that ever happen. So how do you erode the edges of it? How do you dissolve it? How do you create some kind of commonality to where, well, maybe you're not so stupid after all. Well, maybe you have a small point, only a small one. doesn't change my mind, of course, but Maybe there's something I have to address. It's the beginning of the pulling of the thread. And what I tell people who are more fire people and who get impatient is, I want it done now. I say, yeah, I know. This is going to take 30 minutes instead of the normal five. How long are you going to spend in conflict with that person? Or being passive aggressive or holding it like resentment later. And neuroscience has proven that our brains go into something called a refractory state. When our amygdala is triggered, and you're nodding, so you know what this is. So for the listeners who don't, you know, the amygdala is the primitive reptilian brain. It's the fight, flight, freeze thing that, boom, I like you. Boom, I'm safe. Boom, I don't trust you. When that sucker gets activated, the prefrontal cortex, which is under the forehead, goes dead, goes dark. You don't hear. You it's It's called auditory exclusion and ocular occlusion. You don't hear, you don't see. And what do we do? I'm going to give you more data. I'm going to give you more facts. I'm going to become more emotional. I'm going to try to persuade. It's a fool's errand. And it's actually very disrespectful to somebody because when their amygdala is triggered and they are in this refractory state, guess what? Science, they've shoved people in MRIs all over the place. In almost everyone, the average is about 20 minutes. That's it. So wait 20 minutes. Talk about something else. Ask them about their kids, their favorite ice cream, their hobbies, whatever. Talk about something else so that they feel calm. They can get out of the refractory state. You've listened to them. All right, now maybe they might be willing to help you solve a problem. And it changes the entire tone to allow things that can happen that otherwise could absolutely positively never happen. It's it's magic.
1: Hesha, so many things come to mind as I'm listening to you describe that, because I've done a fair amount of study around neuroscience myself. I was fortunate enough to study with Judith Glasser, who researched the neuroscience of conversation uh, before she passed away. And so I just want to bring a a different lens to the same thing you're talking about for a moment. The amygdala gets triggered in seven hundredths of a second. Mm Mm-hmm. The prefrontal cortex takes three hundredths of a second longer. So once you've triggered that amygdala, the electrochemical activity, as you said, blocks access to the prefrontal cortex. Trust lives in the prefrontal cortex. Distrust lives the same area as the amygdala. Yeah. So triggering that distrust, of course, makes it impossible to resolve that conflict the other piece that i I want to bring in here because judith taught us about what she called the three levels of conversation first level was just transactional data exchange the second level is positional so you know i want 10 million dollars you want to give me ten thousand. the third level is co-creation transformation Mm -hmm. and that requires trust yeah i am not going to co-create a solution come to a solution resolve this with you in in any sort of uh collaborative way if i don't trust you
0: see i would give i love that and i would even give a corollary to that that is the optimum but everything i like to do for our listeners is the advanced course what if we can't get to trust? There is nothing you can say or do that's gonna make me trust you. That We have too much history or you've said dumb things or whatever, whatever. We're never gonna get to that, ever. I can create commonality. That's 80% of trust. That's all I have to do is create commonality. And what I tell people, does everyone listening to this want a quick and dirty, fast thing to do if you're in conflict with somebody and your amygdala is triggered and you immediately think bad things about them, you're dumb, you're stupid, you're arrogant, you're self-righteous, you don't listen, whatever, you know, spins through our head, look at the person and say to yourself, to yourself, would this person pull my kid out of a burning car? 95% of the time, the answer to that is yes. So what that does is it says to the amygdala, hold on a minute, maybe there's some redeeming value in this person. So it stops the spin cycle. I can now look at you and think, well, maybe that's true. Now I can look for confirming evidence of that. That can then lead to commonality. And then if you're very lucky and you've done it well, it could lead to trust. But it's really the one, two, three. And I like to give people the one, two, three, because, you know, sometimes you just can't achieve the optimum. You just can't. Okay, either you're not skilled, or you're tired, or there's no time, or they're just impossible to deal with. Okay, let's get 80%. We'll live with that. Let's get 50% and see if we what we can live with it. And it changes the tone, you know? I love to use an analogy about bananas, because there's been tons of studies on this, that bananas, 25 cents each. How many would you buy? I don't know. I like bananas. I buy a couple. Bananas. Four for a dollar. There's a 35% boost in sales. Oh, that's just stupid. But there's a 35% boost in sales. Want another 10% boost in sales? Limit two. I'm not going to let that guy get my bananas. That's completely illogical and not data-driven and makes no sense. And yet, Daniel um, Kahneman and almost Tversky couple of psychologists, got a Nobel Prize in economics for proving that, that human beings are much more worried about what they're going to lose than what they're going to gain. And if you think about your negotiation or your conflict that way, not about the person's trying to get, what they're trying to win, what's the soft candy center they're protecting? What are they trying not to lose? And that's one of the things I have in Holding the Calm is I have Oh, I've got gazillion sentence stems and have them divided up by category. And what I tell people is when you're in conflict, your amygdala is triggered too. So you're not thinking really clearly. Take some of these sentence stems, put them on your phone, put them on a post-it note by your computer so that in the moment when something happens, you have a sentence stem to throw in. It just changes the tone. It's really, it's magical. That's why I kind of put my tricks of people always saying to me, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. It was like, I finally sat down and wrote a book because everybody should have access to these tools, not just professionals. Everybody. Imagine what a more just and verdant world we would have if everybody kind of knew how to handle problems and conflict. <sighs> that would be a wonderful utopia, wouldn't it?
1: <laughs> Your banana store reminded me of the juice I buy at the grocery store. It always has a sign two for such and such a price, which is exactly the same price as two times <laughs> buying one.
0: Isn't that crazy? And they figured out they sell more juice
1: that way. <laughs> and the only reason I don't buy two for is the grocery store is a half a mile away and I walk.
0: <laughs> That's good. Well, it gives you two, so your biceps will be even. <laughs>
1: You talk about mediation. How does all this play out into the more day-to-day negotiations and and disagreements that have to be resolved in the workplace?
0: So when I mediate, I'll have big, big, important CEO people. And you know what we talk about late at night? Their kid's idiot soccer coach or a horrible neighbor, or their stupid brother-in-law. So no matter how big and powerful you are or whatever workplace issues you have, you're still a human being with the human being issues. So everything I talk about here, I fine-tuned it in this fantastic laboratory of business I was given. But this works for interpersonal relations. I don't care if it's your kid. I've done a bunch of podcasts on parenting. And I have children that I'm very close to. I have grandchildren I'm close to. I have a daughter-in-law I'm close to. I know how to, and it wasn't because it was rainbows and unicorns. You know, there's challenges and problems. I know how to navigate those things. And so on my uh, website, holdingthecalm.com, I have all these podcasts listed. Someone, Someone wants to know how to handle something with kids. Bada boom, right there. If it's an employee, Leadership, boom. Co-workers, boom. Neighbors, all everything I'm talking about absolutely works in every single situation because it's human beings have egos and we play bumper car ego all day long. And if you look like me, act like me, think like me, well, we get along pretty well. All right, what about the other 90% of humanity? Right. And the problem is, is that when a conflict happens, we don't tend to say, you know, Joe, you're a great guy in every respect. And we just think very differently about this. No, we say Joe's an idiot. We say Sally's a moron. You know, Juan is impossible to deal with. That's what we do because we go into that automatic defensive mode. So everything that I'm telling you here and I'm discussing with you and everything in the book and everything on my website works in every single situation. The techniques you will use with your coworker or your boss or your employees or your supplier will work in the family and they'll work with your neighbors
1: because it's just human beings. You're bringing up a, a couple of important things, one of which is a mantra of mine around organizational change which is organizations don't change. That's yes, right. <laughs> it's people, it's people. Hello, it's people. I know. They they joke
0: that, uh, what is the joke uh, that um, only two people like change, the Senate minority leader and a wet baby.
1: <laughs> Hesha, you mentioned a few minutes ago that your book contains a number of sentence stems could you give us an example of or two of what that means
0: sure so what i did because i wanted to make the book really accessible and easy for people it's got 20 chapters with 20 tools each tool has sentence stems that apply just to that tool and a bunch of stories so let me give you some of the story ideas and then because they flow into the sentence stems human beings think in pictures. That's why the Bible, the Torah, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, all the, the, um, Quran, they're all speaking allegories and in stories, because I can say to you, you know, if you price something exactly the same as something else, you could get a boost in sales. If you just combine it with and you go, what, but you're not going to forget the banana story. That's the way our brains work. So I have lots of stories with each point. And what I tell people is take my stories, take them. So instead of saying to somebody, you know, do 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 do, do you say, you know, that reminds me of a story. And all my stories are designed to be told in a minute or less, because unfortunately people's attention span is, you got them, you get them 90 seconds, you're lucky, right? So I tell people, take my stories, use them. And within a lot of the stories, sometimes I have sentence stems. And so I have them all divided by category. So let me just give you, uh, I mean, easy ones are, um, you seem very passionate about that. That seems very important to you. I want to understand that more. Tell me more about that. You seem very committed to that. I want to understand why is it so important. Help me understand. Those are kind of like basic easy ones. But let's say something's really hard. Let's say you're in a meeting. And somebody's just spouting off to some kind of garbage and you're like, what do I say? You know, how do I not say it? How do I address it? Or if somebody's directly attacking you in sort of that subtle snide, manipulative way. You have to take power and control back. Otherwise you've you've lost face in that meeting. So how do you do that without attacking or being shrill? So uh you'll look at them and you'll say, you know what I admire about you? the ears go boing, 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 boing. Conversation stops. You could hear a pin drop because they want to hear what you're going to say after that. How about, you know what I respect about you? You know what I admire about you? And then it can be something as simple as your passion, your dedication, your perseverance, your eloquence. You come up, everybody, you can come up with something. And by the way, everyone listening, that works great at the Thanksgiving or Christmas table. You know, when somebody spouts off on something stupid, it just stops the conversation politely and gently, and it moves it down. But more importantly, in a workplace situation, let's say we're at a big table, someone spouts off and says something stupid, and it's kind of directed at me, and I have to handle and manage and deal with that. By saying that, it's no longer about the content of what the person said. It's about who's got the power. Who's the one who's the most skillful, in that situation, because if you get angry, if you cry, if you shout back, you could be right, but you won't be respected, you won't be admired, and you lose power. So I'm a big believer, keep the power. And (laughs) I just thought of a crazy story that is not in the book, that I actually did years ago that I normally don't talk about, but it's coming into my head to talk about it, so may I share it? Absolutely. This happened a long time ago. must've been, oh God, at least 20 years ago, I'm thinking. I was a young woman, I was in my thirties and I was mediating a big, a big oil and gas case. And it was all men. I mean, I even had guys in the Texas hats and the big diamond belt buckles. I mean, like I had serious people there, right? And it was a big fraud case. So I had a lot of guys and no women and just me. And we took a break. And I got we all got up to get coffee and I'm standing by the coffee place and some guy that if I use the word corpulent, does that conjure up a visual image for you? (laughs) It's such a great word because everyone listening goes, oh God, like this guy was corpulent, right? So he's big, you know, he just, he's corpulent, right? And I'm getting the coffee and my back was against the wall. He came up to me put his hands on either side of the wall. So I'm pinned in between him. And he just goes, aren't you sweet? you just sweet. you just sweet as sugar. Aren't you just sweet as sugar? So it was his way of disempowering me to make me just kind of go away and become a little nothing that wasn't going to get involved in this deal we were trying to structure. And I see 12 men in that room freeze and they all watched. Okay, no one's gonna come and rescue you. You gotta take care of yourself. It's in that moment, get away from me, don't talk to me like that, you're stupid. All the options people would think to say. None of them would have been good for me to maintain or retain power. Now, if I had a dollar for every time I said the right thing at the exact right moment, you know, I'd be sitting on millions of dollars. But in this moment, the right thing came to me and I just looked at him and because he's this corpulent guy, I playfully punched him in the arm, and I said, well, aren't you just sweet? I'm just an old broad with stretch marks. His face fell. All the other guys started laughing at him. Who had the power in the situation? And I was then successfully, was able to conclude the deal and had respect from everybody. Now, I'm not telling people that you should say that about yourself, but I'm using that as an example that when you feel powerful, and you say, I have skills, I have tools, I have sentence stems. I mean, holding the calm is really easy to master and to do, it's all laid out for you. Then when the situation comes up, chapter one of the book is speaking to the ears that are hearing you. You can look around and decide, how are you gonna handle it? And what are you gonna do? You could have another situation where someone is just crying or angry or raging. You can't be logical with them. So you literally look at them and say, I can see how important this is to you. We're going to take a moment because I want to understand it better. What does that do to the other person's amygdala? Just calms down. It allows that 20-minute refractory state to start calming. And then now under the bias of reciprocity and neuroscience has shown we've got like 198 biases inside us. You listen to me. I want to listen to you. There's a whole lot of things that come into play there. And it started out with a sentence stem. And the reason I put them in the book is because if your amygdala is not triggered, you can be much more skillful, can't you? But what happens if your amygdala is triggered? Well, you're not as good, are you? So I'm a human being. You could poke me and get my amygdala done. I have these sentence stems and I spit them out, you know, when I need to, because one, it takes care of the situation, but it makes me feel powerful. I don't feel powerless. So it calms my amygdala down. And one of the things that I suggest to people when I came up with the name, Holding the Calm, I use it as a mantra myself, as a talisman myself, a rabbit's foot. In my head, I can say, I'm holding the calm, I'm holding the calm, I'm holding the calm. That takes two seconds. And what it does is it's so much better than take a deep breath. That doesn't really work, because what that says is you're out of control. Calm yourself down. That just makes the amygdala more freaked out. But when I say something powerful, like I'm holding the calm, I'm holding the calm, I'm holding the calm. And I know I've got tools that go with it. I don't feel powerless anymore. I've got choices. I've got options. I've got things I can do. Now choose one. And let's say that one doesn't work. Okay. Choose another. One of them's going to work. It's Literally, I've had people write me and tell me how it has changed their lives, how it has just been magical to not feel powerless anymore. And that's what happens in conflict. We tend to feel powerless. That's what makes it so awful. You know, when we think the screamer and yeller has power, he or she doesn't.
1: They're just not very skillful. I love the idea of power in calmness. And, and part of that power and a like us to wrap up by hearing you talk about this just a little bit part of that power is that calm doesn't just stay with you it impacts the others in the room completely correct
0: and what i tell people though is be selfish don't worry about impacting the others impact you once you impact you by definition the others get impacted You know, there's a marvelous thing in Jewish mysticism and there's a Hebrew word called Rashimu that is absolutely magnificent and I love it. The idea is that for people that, you know, believe in angels or believe that God talks to you or there's messengers or things like that, it's the idea that God says, I have a chocolate cake and I want you to give it to that guy over there. Okay. You can't lick it. You can't take a piece out of it. You got to give the chocolate cake to you. But if you do your job well, you get to have the hint of the magic left with you. And I analogize that to the cake is yours, but I get to lick the bowl. And how magnificent is that? And the more you do it, the more you do impact people around you, but selfishly do it for you first. It's sort of like put on your own oxygen mask before you yep. put it on, you know, your neighbors. And then what will happen at work for people that are listening, since this is more of a work podcast, people aren't going to say, my, 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 how skillful you are, or you're using holding the calm techniques correctly. No, they're just going to say, she just gets stuff done. He just has a way with people. He's just easy to deal with. She's a good leader. That's what people will say. And you don't have to take some master class or get a Ph.D. or get some big certification. I mean, literally, <laughs> read this little fifteen-dollar paperback book, and it will, it will, it will masterfully impact your life.
1: Asha Abrams, holding the calm. Thank you for this conversation.
0: My pleasure.